We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy and your kindness toward us in Christ. Thank you for your word, God, that you did not leave us in the dark to speculate and grope about who you are and what you have done to save and redeem your people. Lord God, we thank you for inspiring holy men to capture all that you have done for us in the word of God. Help us, God, by the aid of your spirit to understand these things, to believe them, O Lord, to obey you by your spirit. Lord, we need your help this morning as ever. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So if you don't have a handout, please grab one of those handouts on the edge of those chairs over there. We are in session seven of this, this uh, topic, which is um, you can trust the word of God. You can trust the word of God. And session seven is starting with scripture. So last week, just as a recap, first of all, I gave you some homework. Did anybody actually do it? No, that means no. <laughs> all right. So just as a recap, last week we talked about um, how we test or these three biblical tests that could be applied against claims that modern day so-called um, prophets have to have received new revelation from God. Right. So we talked about these three tests. Does anybody remember what they were? Right. Did it come to pass? Did they make false predictions or did it come to pass? What was the next one? Yes. It does. It does. It point the people of God to God. And what was the third one? Does it add or take away from the 66 books of the Bible? Those are the three basic tests. Obviously, there's more. I was trying to pare it down and give you something real easy to kind of grab onto, right? Um, so, you didn't do the homework, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> so, uh, can I have one of those handouts so I can... Thank you. So, yeah, we're on lesson seven, starting with God's word, and the key themes are God's word is the standard that we use to judge every thought, and God's existence makes sense of the entire universe. So, we'll be going through First um, Peter 3, 14 through 17 mainly, and we'll probably spend some time in Acts 17 as well. I didn't put that on there, but um, more than likely we'll spend time in Acts 17 as well. So what, the plan, what we plan to learn today primarily is um, how to differentiate between two different forms, the two different main forms of apologetics. So remember, um, and they are presuppositional apologetics and evidence, evidential. So remember we talked about at the beginning of this course, one of the things that we're supposed to be doing here is, um, so the main title of the course is you can trust the word of God, right? And so part of this is going to involve apologetics, right? Part of this is going to involve apologetics. So you need to understand something about what apologetics is, how, how it functions in our understanding as believers. So we're going to spend this session today kind of explaining the two differences between those two. So um, the first question I want you to think about is at the bottom of your handout on the first page. So before we do anything else, I need you to answer this question, okay? It's a multiple choice question, all right? 
The goal of Christian apologetics is to, and then you have a multiple, you have four options there, A, B, C, and D. I need you to circle one of those, which one you think is the right answer, <clears throat> and then we'll come back and discuss as we go through the lesson today. So take a couple minutes, answer that first question. This is indeed a placement test. Okay, so yeah, just answer, circle one of those answers. We'll come back to it. So don't be afraid of these big fancy words like presuppositional and evidentiary. We'll explain all of that as we go through. So if you have your Bibles, okay, turn your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. So today's lesson, like I said, is a we're going to step back, take a look at the nature of apologetics, what apologetics is. And so throughout this lesson today, we'll be, ex we'll be mainly talking about, you know, the, some principles of apologetics. Um, so in order to understand what apologetics is and what the Bible teaches about this subject, we need to look at some passages of Scripture that address this topic. Okay, so first Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 14 through 17, reads, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So many of you are probably familiar with this passage, and particularly verse 15. Um, but it is rarely put in the context when people talk about this passage and refer to it in a, about apologetics, they rarely put it in the context of suffering for Christ's sake. But that is, in fact, the, the context of this passage of this verse. And then the last four words of verse 15, which read, yet do it with gentleness and respect, most oftentimes are ignored. So when we do apologetics, we need to keep that in mind. It's in the context of suffering for Christ. And then there's a manner or a disposition in which we ought to have when we are defending the faith. OK, so <clears throat> remember, we've been doing the same thing whenever we go through a passage and we try to start it and we try to interpret it. What is the first thing we're supposed to do? Observation. Right. So we're going to do that. Observation. So if you're new here for the first time, just so you know, this, this, uh, these Sunday schools have been a little different. So we're trying to teach our people to get into the reflex of observing what the Bible actually says before we start to interpret and start and put importing our own understanding of what's going on. You need to be certain 
first of what God says before you can obey what God says. Amen? Okay. So who is Peter addressing in this epistle? Yes, he's, it's the church, right? He's addressing believers. So if you look back to 1 Peter 2.21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. So he's talking about believers who are suffering. We know this from the letter, you know, who the letter was addressed to the elect exiles of the dispersion, and there's other internal evidence in the letter that lets us know that he is talking to believers who are suffering for Christ, right? So you have to couch that in your understanding of what he means when he's talking about doing apologetics, okay? Now, what does suffering lead to in verse 14? This type of suffering, suffering in this way, what can it lead to? Blessing, right? Right? So, rather than being afraid, what commandments appear in verse 15? What are the commandments that you see in verse 15? Do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. And honor Christ, the Lord is holy in your heart, right? Those are the commands that you see. To sanctify the Lord, to be ready to give a defense is, an, is another one. To not have fear, nor be troubled. Those are all commandments that you see here, right? Right? So you're not, those are commandments that the, the scripture has given us to how we ought to do apologetics. Now, um, who is the defense to be given to? Where do you see that? To anyone who asks, right? So anyone who asks. So remember, when we do observation, what are you not supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be just looking at the text, telling us what the text says, right? And we're doing observation. So you're supposed to give an answer to anyone who asks, is what it says, right? So, and how is that defense supposed to be delivered? With gentleness or respect, depending on what Bible you, you have, it might be with meekness and fear, but that's the, that's the disposition that you're supposed to have. So here we have in this text, we see that the word of God is commanding us to not be afraid. We should not have fear. We should not have trouble. We should not be anxious about defending the faith, that we should in fact defend the faith and that we have to do it with a particular disposition when we're talking to people who ask us, right? We have to do it with gentleness and with respect, okay? Now, what is the result of answering with gentleness and respect. So, to revile your good behavior in Christ and you put to shame. Okay. You have a good conscience and you bring to shame those who are trying to defame you or slander you as a believer. Right? 
So those are the, those are the results of it, right? So again, and then the historical context of this epistle we talked about earlier, right? Is he's addressing dispersed Christians who are facing various trials. And we know that from 1 Peter chapter, we know this from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, right? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. All right, so the main, what's the main point of this passage that we just read? 1 Peter chapter 3, 14 through 17. What's the main point? Defending your faith. Right. To offer a defense to those who ask about the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have to defend the faith, defend why it is we believe, what we believe. We must do it without fear. We must do it, and we must do it with gentleness and with respect to anyone who asks. Amen? Amen. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there, these two commands in verse 15 that we see here, but in your hearts honor the Lord as holy, always being prepared to, to make a defense to anyone who asks, right? If, <clears throat> if you have not set God apart in your heart, have not made God holy in your heart, the reason for the hope that you have might be something else other than what God has revealed to us. Does that make sense to you? So we have to have set, we have to have set Christ apart in our hearts as holy, right? We have to see God, see Christ as holy in our hearts in order to have this proper reason, this proper hope in order for us to defend that. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yes, ma'am. I have a question for that, because I was thinking when you were asking what you were commanded to do, is having a good conscience relating to that. I'm sorry? Having a good conscience. I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not quite following your question. We need to have said Christ, Christ in our hearts. Okay. Okay, so in, in this, if I understand your question correctly, I'm, I don't quite understand it. Okay, <laughs> so she said, she said that, um, okay, I'm sorry, just repeat it one more time for me, ma'am. You said we need to set Christ apart in our hearts. We need to set Christ apart in our hearts. Yes, yes, I did say that. So my question is, is that how, I, I, I read King James, I know, I know mm -hmm. but anyway, uh, so it says having a good conscience, is that how my conscience is made good because I have Christ? Okay, so, no, 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 okay, so this, okay, I'm following you now. What she's asking is, is that, um, I made a statement, which was, we have to have Christ set apart in our hearts in, in order to have a proper hope, the right con hope in the right thing. And then she says that in verse 16, where it says, having a good conscience, how are we supposed to set Christ in our, apart in our hearts so that we can have a good conscience, right? Is that the question? Is, I'm asking if, 
if they're connected. Okay, so in verse 15, what he's saying here in verse 15 is, is that um, you're supposed to be able to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And the, and the manner in which that you do it in is gentleness and respect, right? And you, you, you're supposed to do this with a good conscience, right? You're supposed to defend these things with a good conscience because you know what you believe, you know why you believe it, you know why you have hope in Christ and how that's founded on the things that God has revealed to us in Scripture. So some... This was the point that I was trying to get at. So some of us have, um, some believers have hope in Christ, not necessarily for the things that he has done for us in salvation. You know, there are some people who believe that following Christ is going to give you a better life, which is not necessarily true. Following Christ is going to prosper you in some kind of way, which is not necessarily true financially. There are people that who believe those things. So if you are following Christ for those reasons, that's not the proper reason that you ought to be following him primarily, right? That's not the, re- that's not the proper reason for you to have hope in God, because there's no guarantee in scripture that, you know, you're going to prosper financially. There's no guarantee in scripture that your life's going to be better. There's no guarantee in scripture that your marriage is going to be better if you come to faith. The guarantee that you have in scripture is that your sins are going to be given, forgiven, you're going to be reconciled to God and redeemed when you come to faith in Christ. Those are the guarantees that and we're going to live in eternity with God, new heavens, new earth, with glorified bodies. Those are the guarantees that Scripture gives to you. And that is where your hope is founded in based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anything else that you get from that are secondary, right, if they happen, but they may not. Right? Amen? Amen. So, your hope should be grounded in the things that God has revealed in Scripture. What he has promised us in Scripture according to his word. And so, when you do that, right, you have a proper foundation of hope. Because you've set Christ apart for the reasons that he has proclaimed in his word. Right? And then you have a proper foundation of hope. So when you defend the faith, that's what you're, you're defending the right thing with a good conscience based on God's word. Okay? So what is the hope that Peter is speaking of in verse 15? I just gave you a hint. The hope is the hope of salvation in Christ, right? And the future hope of glory that we have in Christ in, in, in the future, right? Because we have not received all that there is to receive in our salvation. So we'll get new bodies, glorified bodies. We'll live with God forever. This is the hope of every Christian. Amen? Amen. Now, right now, if you are a believer and you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he has regenerated your heart, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven. But there is still yet more to come in the Christian life. So we still have hope in what God is going to do in the future. Amen? All right, so that's the hope that Peter is referring to here in verse 15. 
Now, why is this verse on giving a reason for our hope surrounded by suffering? Why is it talking about suffering? Why is it couched in the context of suffering? So he's, at, he's telling you the commandment here is to give anybody who asks a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Why do you think that, that he's talking about it in the context of suffering? I don't know who was first. Okay, Marty. Right, because he's, he's, what Marty said was because the Lord promised us suffering because he suffered, we'll suffer. What were you going to say, brother? I was going to say is that uh, tie it in with what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 talks about and how Peter says, you learned this first, that Christ died for our sins. And that's what I think is referring to this. Okay, so... With a good conscience, with knowledge, mm-hmm. conscience, with knowledge, that Christ died for us. Okay. Right, so as we present, yes, sir. I, I didn't finish that up with, uh, we're also called to be different from the world, so we react different to the world, and then, therefore people will ask us, why are you different? What's the, why, are, why are you not reacting like this? Right, so he said, what he said was is that we've been called to act differently to the wor- than the world, and so when we do that, the world will then be inquisitive and ask, like, why are you acting this way? So all of those are good answers. As we represent the truths of Scripture, right, as we, as Christians, as we defend the faith, represent the truths of Scripture and the person of Christ, the world will hate you just as it hated him, right? So standing for truth in a world that denies it is always going to be costly, Right? The Bible is very clear about this, right? Those who are outside of Christ are hostile to the things of God, right? They are, they are hostile to the things of God. And so for that reason, when you stand up and proclaim the truth, your expectation should be that those who deny the truth are going to be hostile to you. That should be your expectation, right? Is that your expectation? That those who deny the gospel, when you speak to them about the truth of Scripture, it's your expectation that they're going to be hostile and rejected and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yes, sir. Right, so <clears throat> that's the point that we're making here. The mind that is in the flesh is hostile to God and cannot please him, yep. right? This is why it's so important that we talked about this for the last couple of weeks. This is so important for us to understand this and believe it in. You have to drill this all the way down into your soul. No one is going to come to the faith because of an intellectual argument, okay? You must have your heart changed first. The Spirit of God 
must regenerate a person's heart before they will ever believe the gospel. Right? But that doesn't alleviate you of the responsibility of speaking the truth in love, preaching the gospel, and defending the faith. Right? But you have to live in reality. Right? You have to live in reality. You have to understand when you're talking to somebody who rejects Christianity that it is their, in fact, their disposition of heart that is going to determine how they interpret the Bible. Do you understand that? Their disposition of heart towards God is going to determine whether or not they believe this. Does that make sense to you? You have to believe that and understand that and, the, and, and entrust the, the Lord to regenerate that person. Not your argumentation, not necessarily your delivery. Now, you should do it in meekness and gentleness and fear like the Bible and, and, and respect like the Bible commands us to. But even that's not going to save anybody. Right. Anyways, I'm sorry, I got off on a little rant there. Right. So unbelievers. Right. He says here that the reason that we ought to do it with gentleness and respect is so that listen to this. When they slander you. When you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he's making an assumption. What's the assumption that's being made? That you will be slandered. Right. He's making the assumption that you will be slandered. And so what you have to do in spite of all of this is give a reasonable defense is what this. So in verse 15, where he says, uh, be prepared to make a defense. Now, I know you're probably not walking around with a Greek lexicon in your pocket right now, but that word is the word defense is in Greek is uh, from the root word apologia. Right. And that is the word that we get the word apologetics from. Okay, so this word from which we get apologetics, its basic meaning is a reasoned, a reasoned defense. Okay, so we're supposed to give a reasonable defense for why it is we believe the things that we believe. Right. A reasonable defense. What that means for us is, is that you need to be able to know what you believe, why you believe it, and you need to be able to articulate it in a reasonably intellectual fashion. Does that make sense to you? You need to know what it is you believe about the Christian faith. You need to know why it is you believe those things. You need to be able to articulate it. And, he, and this has nothing to do with the ways that you feel about it. This is, has to do with what you understand the gospel is. Does that make sense to you? Does that, does that make sense to you? So <clears throat> when I was, um, I was in a park one day with my, with my I think it was Matthias. And this, this um, some little boy, he was probably like 12. He walked up to me and started trying to witness to me, <laughs> right? He was by himself. I was like, I was impressed. I'm like, I, that's pretty impressive. And, he, and so he comes up to me and he says, 
excuse me, sir, can I talk to you for a minute? How you doing today? I'm like, good. He goes, you go to church? I'm like, yeah, I do. I do. I do. And then he goes, well, I want to, he gives, gives me this business card and he goes, you, would you like to come to my church one day? And I'm like, why? And he goes, well, because, you know, God is really good. And, you know, if you come to church, maybe if you come to my church, he'll bless you more. And then I go, well, I'm pretty blessed. You know, I got a wife, five kids. I got a decent job. Life's good. <laughs> and then he goes, it may not always be. And so you should come to church so that you can be blessed always. And I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> right? And so he gets up and he starts to walk away. And then I say, hey, come here. Come back. Let me talk to you. I actually am a Christian. I go tell them what church I go to and I go, listen, when you talk to people about Christianity, you should talk to them about Jesus Christ. You know, you shouldn't like try to be, like, I can have a terrible life and still be saved, brother. Right? So I, I, like, I didn't like beat, the, beat him down into the ground because I was actually, it was, you know, I tried to encourage him because he's 12 and he's out in the park trying to evangelize by himself. So, but I was just trying to help, you know, like, brother, you have to talk to people about their sin. You have to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to talk to them about those things because there are a lot of people in this world who are blessed beyond belief financially, and if that's your hook, they're not listening, right? The same goes for us, right? When we do evangelism, when we do apologetics, we're supposed to give people why we have the hope that we have in salvation, in Christ, apart from anything else. Those other things, Pastor Ed talked about it last week. Those other um, benefits that may come along are secondary, right? So it's true, you know, my marriage, I've been married coming up on 28 years next week. It got a lot better once the Lord saved us. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But that was a secondary um, benefit not the primary one, because the Lord could have Lord could have just saved one of us. Not that's not a guarantee. So you need to speak about what the what is the gospel actually promising. Amen. Amen. Okay. So when we say a reason defense, it's not an emotional defense. It's an intellectual explanation for why the gospel is true, right? So. Apologetics. Apologetics is providing a reasoned defense for the faith that we have in Christ and the hope that it gives us. So typically, we would practice apologetics as we interact with people who have questions about the Christian faith, about what you believe and why you believe those things. And so, so apologetics, to some degree, is an aspect of evangelism. Does that make sense to you? So as you're evangelizing people, talk, talking to them about the gospel, about Jesus Christ, some people are going to naturally have questions, and you're going to have to be able to answer the questions that you can answer in a reasonable fashion from the scriptures. Okay? So, and so it is a... At, apologetics is necessary, is a necessary aspect to doing 
evangelism. So evangelism and, and apologetics could be considered two sides of the same coin. Okay? You, don't be naive here. Okay? If you're going to talk to your friends and your family and your co-workers about Jesus Christ, you should expect them to have questions. Should you not? Do you understand the claim that you're making when you preach the gospel? That a shepherd from Nazareth 2,000 years ago was put in a tomb and he got out of the grave in three days and he's coming back for us? Do you understand that if you don't know about the Bible and you've never heard that before, you're going to sound crazy. You understand that, right? You know why? Because dead people don't get out of the grave. Right? So you, you need to have an explanation for how you can believe that dead people come back to life. Does that make sense to you? So that's part of apologetics. When you preach the gospel, you should quite naturally expect people to have some of these questions. So that leads us to the question of how to properly engage in apologetics. Right. So does the Bible give us a framework? Are there examples of biblical figures practicing apologetics? And, you know, how can we are there any different schools of thought as it relates to apologetics? So now when you think about apologetics and evangelism, there are two basic camps, two, two basic camps. There's evidentialists and they are presuppositionalists right now. And I don't think that those are necessarily the best names because presuppositionalists use evidence and evidentialists have presuppositions. Nevertheless, that's the names that they have. So the basic difference is that evidentialists tend to begin with uh, proof and evidence for their reasoning outside of the scripture, typically. Not always. I'm speaking generally. Not all of them. Okay. So <clears throat> in presuppositionalists demand that the Bible be the foundation for every argument presented in the defense of the faith. Right. So, so a presuppositionalist might say, I don't need to point to anything outside of the Bible, like in nature or in creation at all, ever to prove any point whatsoever, right? And a evidentialist might say, I don't even need to use the Bible at all to prove that God is who he says he is. I could just point to nature. That's just general, okay? Now, of course, there's shades in the middle of all of this. I'm speaking generally. Yes, sir. I'm just not addressing it because no, how many people in this room other than John know what classical apologetics is? Two people. Right. And I know these two people. <laughs> right. They're not like they're not like the rest of them. OK. So generally speaking, I'm speaking. In gen I tend to speak generally because I don't like to get down into the weeds unless you have. You know, I'm just trying to speak generally. Right. When you go talk to your unbelieving friends and family, they're not going to know what classical apologetics is. Okay? So again, like I said, I'm speaking generally. Um, now, um, 
I think there's some benefit to both of these approaches. Okay? But I, I will lean, I, I lean more. You need to understand that the Bible speaks in a particular way. God does not try to prove himself to unbelievers. So when we get to Genesis 1-1, the Bible just speaks about God creating the earth. It doesn't try to prove that he exists at all. Romans 1-1, or Romans chapter 1, says, like, unapologetically that everybody knows that God exists. And they're suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. There's not an unbeliever on the planet that does not know that Yahweh is God. Okay? So in some ways, that is actually, that's, pre, that's what presuppositional apologetics, that's the foundation of presuppositional apologetics. So when you walk up to an unbeliever, you know some things about them that are true, even though they're denying them. Right? Does that make sense to you? Every person that you talk to, every unbeliever that you talk to, you know a couple things about them. One, they know God exists. Right? And that they're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. You should, so you can assume when you talk to them, that's the foundation that they're coming to the scriptures with, right? Second thing is that you can know is, is that they love their sin, and unless God changes their heart, they're going to do all that they can to war against it, okay? Those are some things that are just automatically true. So in that regard, you are, in fact, if you believe those things, you're operating from a presuppositional standpoint, Right? So we talked about this earlier in the, in the um, beginning of this, this, this um, course. What do you believe about the word of God? What do you believe about the gospel? Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is only the gospel that can change unregenerate hearts and nothing else. Your winsome arguments, your love, your respect... All of these things are good and valuable, but none of those things are going to, going to convert the unconverted heart. Only God can do that. Right? Again, that's another presupposition. Right? Now, you can help people who struggle with things, who have genuine questions, by answering those questions using evidence. Right? And it's good, useful, and helpful. But understand, only the Spirit of God can change the heart of a man. Does that make sense to you? Yes, sir. The heart of God is the Holy Spirit, right? The Trinity mm -hmm. is going to change their heart. That's what you're to right. So when you, you, you witness to people and you, you preach the gospel to them, the, the spirit of God upon them hearing the gospel, if the God is going to save them, it's going to be because they heard the gospel and the spirit of God changed their heart and caused them to believe it. Once they hear, how can they hear unless they have a preacher, right? So you have to preach the gospel to them and trust that God, if, he's, if this is a believer or um, one of his elect, that he's going to convert them upon the hearing of the gospel. Does that make sense to you? So in that regard, you're, you're functioning from a presuppositional standpoint. 
you're making some presuppositions about every person that you meet. Does that make, does that make sense to you? Right? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? One, there's something preceding something else, right? If you don't understand these and believe these things, that's going to change how you do apologetics. Right? You're going to approach people with the idea that you can argue them into the faith, that you can love them into the faith, that if you just come up with the right intellectual statement, that they'll start believing Christ. No, that's just not true. That's just not true. Okay, so, yes, sir. Right. So listen, I think I said this to somebody just recently. I can give you a piece of evidence, right? I can give the same two people a piece of evidence, and they're going to draw two different conclusions from the exact same piece of evidence based on the disposition of heart that they have toward God, right? So let me give you an example. So what is this? What, I think this is a common thing that people know, right? Uh, 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 um, an orangutan has like 95% of the same DNA as a human being. And so if I'm an unbeliever, I'm going to hear that and go, see, evolution is true. Right? You evolved. You're an evolved primate because you have 95% of the same DNA as a human being. But I'm a Christian. All that means to me is, is that we got the same creator. He used the same material to make both of us. What's your point? So we got two people looking at the exact same piece of evidence coming to two different conclusions. Why? Because of, yeah, because of where your starting point, because of the disposition that you started from, right? That goes, that go, that goes for, that, we interpret the Bible that way, right? We interpret, some, some of us, let me rewind. Remember when I talked about this weeks ago, I've been saying this, and I've been told by my wife, my spiritual gift is beating dead horses, okay? <laughs> Listen, I need you to understand something. If you do not have a clear, defined method for how you interpret the Bible, right? It's clear, and you can point to it. If you don't have this, what's going to happen is that your emotions and your disposition of heart is going to color how you interpret every passage of scripture you come to. Does that make sense to you? Does that make sense? Do you understand that? If you do not have a clear and well-defined method for how you interpret the Bible, you're going to interpret the Bible based on your disposition of heart, how you feel about the subject, right? So if you hate men, ladies, if you hate men, and you're going to approach the Bible, interpreting the Bible in a way that's going to justify your hatred of men. Men, if you hate and dishonor women, 
and you think that they are inferior to you in every way. When you approach the scriptures, you're going to interpret the scriptures in a way that justifies your prejudice against women. If you hate your mother and your father and your parents and your children and your neighbors, okay, you're going to justify these crazy interpretations of scripture to, and come up with a biblical defense for you to sin. Does that make sense to you? So you have to have, you have to be, so if I haven't revealed it, I'm, I kind of lean more towards presuppositions. Don't, I don't trust my own heart. You shouldn't trust yours. Okay? Like you're, um, you're living in delusional la-la land. Okay? If you think you're approaching any passage of scripture objectively, you're either approaching the scripture in faith or out of it. Your interpretation, your interpretation of scripture are being colored by the things that you believe in your experiences. And that's why it's absolutely critical for you to have a external objective means of interpreting the Bible. And you need to submit that to other godly people. Otherwise, you're going to be out in the weeds doing a whole bunch of crazy stuff, saying a whole bunch of crazy stuff by yourself, justifying your sin and using the Bible to do it. Amen? All right. So you have to have this clearly defined way of interpreting Scripture. I'm sorry. We're jumping up the head to Acts 17. Let's go to Acts 17 because I need to deal with um, evidence. Evidence. So th I think there's some benefit to using presupposition apologetics. There's some benefits to using evidentiary apologetics under a particular um, caveat, though. Okay, so in Acts 17, um, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire passage, but um, so I'm going to start at verse 1 and read through verse 4. It says, And now they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three, day, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. OK, so that's Acts 17 verses 1 through 4. And then in Acts 10, I mean, Acts 17, Acts 17, Acts 17. Verse 10, I'm going to read verses 10 through 12. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than, the, than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high of, of high standing as well as men. So that's Acts 17, 10 through 12. And then I'll get into a little bit later here, 16 through 35, because just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of that. So um, the author of this, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, is Luke. Luke, he was writing the account of what happened after uh, Jesus' resurrection to a man named Theophilus. You see that in Acts 1 through 2. Uh, and this 
passage or this book is in a historical narrative. So in these particular events that took place in verses one through four, they happened in Amphipolis, Apollonia, and Thessalonica, right? And then in 17, Acts 17, um, it was in Berea. And then later on, he moved on to Athens. So um, in passages, and in verses one through four, and in verses 10 through 12, Paul, he's in Jewish synagogues. He goes to these synagogues. He goes from one city. Goes, the first thing he does is goes to the synagogue. The Bible says, as was his custom. Then he goes to another city. He goes directly to the synagogue, right? So um, he, and then in verse, and then when you get to um, Acts 17, uh, 17, he's in Athens, right? And he doesn't go to the synagogue in that passage, right? Okay, so those, that's the context that he's in in these three different uh, occasions. So in verse 18, when Paul was preaching, um, it said that what he was doing, I'm going to read it. It says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. So now, what was he talking about? Jesus in the resurrection, right? So, okay, I got up. So there are some, when you read Acts 17, when you get down to verse um, 22, Paul says this. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way, feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this is the, this is the message that he gives to the Athenians, right? Now, this is a text that some people will say, okay, um, because Paul in verse 28, he, he gives two quotes that he, they're not biblical quotes per se. They are quotes from... Um, 
yeah, Greek poets. Okay, they're quotes from Greek poets. And so some will argue that you can, you don't necessarily have to start with the foundation of the Bible when you're talking to unbelievers and you can use evidence from the world to prove that God exists. And this is one of the passages that they'll use to say, okay, you need to contextualize your preaching to the people that you're talking to. Now, to some degree, that's true. You, the people that you're speaking to need to understand what it is you're saying, right? But if you read what Paul is saying here, he's, everything he's saying is biblical, okay? Everything he's saying is biblical, and he ends it with a call to repentance, and he talks specifically about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? And if you remember, we read earlier in verse 18, while he was in Athens, it says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So if you find yourself in this camp where you think that this is a legitimate form, you absolutely cannot speak to unbelievers and call it evangelism if you are not talking about Christ and the resurrection. Does that make sense to you? Okay. If you talk to your unbelieving friends and family and co-workers and you spend your energy artfully and winsomely proving that God exists and do not call them to repentance and faith in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, you have not done evangelism, right? That should be your goal. Your, your aim, your aim in doing apologetics is to prove and give a reasonable defense why you have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you, you understand that? Do you understand? You can prove to an unbeliever that God is real, you can prove to them that the Ten Commandments are beneficial for them to follow. You can prove to them that Yahweh is, in fact, the creator of the universe. You can prove to them, all, you can prove to them that Jesus was, in fact, a real person. You can prove to them that marriage is good, that abortion is wrong, that it is wrong for you to steal and Fill in it. It's, it's good for you to go. It's good and beneficial for your soul for you to go to church on Sunday. All of those things you can argue people into believing. But if you have not called them to repentance, confession of sin, and to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have not done what you have been commanded to do by your Lord and Savior. Amen? That is the goal. That is your that is your purpose and goal in doing apologetics is to witness to unbelievers about the, the salvation that we have in Christ and Christ alone, right? That God secured it through his son, resurrected him from the grave. He sits right now at the right hand of the father and that he's returning 
to consummate all that he's promised. That is your goal, to defend why that's true from the Bible. And if you don't do that, you're not, you may be loving your neighbor, but you are not witnessing him to them and you're not doing apologetics the way that the Bible has prescribed it. Does that make sense to you? Now, understand what I'm trying to tell you, because I know I'm going to get intentionally misinterpreted. Okay? I'm not saying that it's not good for you. You should love your neighbor. You should have respect for your neighbor. You should argue for why abortion is wrong. You should argue for why God exists. But you should never do it disconnected from leading them to Christ. Does that make sense to you? That's the, that's the whole goal and aim. If you talk, if you talk, I'm going to pick on Lucretia. If I talk this woman into not aborting her baby and I don't talk to her about the Lord Jesus Christ, she's going to have a whole baby and, and spend eternity in hell. Do you understand? You need to do both. You're more than capable of doing both. Okay? I, I don't know why we make these false dichotomies. It's illegitimate. You could do both. You don't have to choose. Why do you have to choose? Where did you get the idea from that you have to choose? You just made that up. Right? God demands that you do both. My son's got to clean their room and respect their mother. You got to do both of those. Right? You have to do both. You have to love your neighbor. You have to be winsome. You have to be respectful. You have to be meek. And you have to honor them and, and respect them as... Uh, uh, image bearers of God, and you have to defend the gospel. You got to do both of those. Amen? That's our responsibility as believers. Any questions? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your kindness to us, God. Help us, Lord, to remember that you are good and you are kind and you have commanded us to do something, Lord. We're supposed to defend the things that we believe We're supposed to know, oh God, why we believe them, and we're supposed to do it in a way that is uh, kind and respectful of our unbelieving friends and families and neighbors, oh Lord. Help us, God, to not forget that these are image bearers of God. They need you more than anything else, oh Lord. And help us, God, also to not use that as an excuse to neglect their needs, their physical and emotional needs. But God, help us all to remember Ultimately, their ultimate need is to know Christ and to believe in his resurrection for the redemption of their souls and the forgiveness of sin. Help us, God, to do these things for your glory and honor. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.